Hello, and welcome to the Anchor Discipleship Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help guide and grow you in your walk with the Lord by providing an in-depth study of God's Word with this lesson. So please grab your Bibles and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with this week's lesson. All right, page 104, Footsteps of Messiah. On page 104 of Footsteps of Messiah, we're going to look at the, the third birth pain, and we look at Jerusalem under Jewish control. So you all following me there? Okay. As we talked about, there are birth pains, that things that are happening that are, are a run-up to the tribulation, these things are happening in our lifetime. So this is one of those things that are, has happened already in our lifetime as we look back. Okay, so Jerusalem under control, what we start seeing is there is a necessity for Israel not only to be back in the land prior to the tribulation, for the, for the whole end time scenario, but a control over the old city of Jerusalem. The old city, let me be very specific, they need to control the old city. Okay? So in 1948, 1949, they have the Arab War as they go back into the land. They were virtually fighting the Arabs with shovels and hammers and things like that and maybe a gun here and there. They were, they were totally outmanned and they won that war of independence once they got back in the land. So for 19 years, from that point on, they still didn't control Jerusalem. Jerusalem was under the control of the Jordanians, the Hashemite kingdom had control of the Temple Mount and Jerusalem as well. Okay, so then, what's the prophetic scenario of why Israel has to control the old city? Well, we go to the scriptures, okay? So we go, we go through this and see what they imply. The first one we point out is Daniel 9.27, right there on the bottom of your page. And this is talking about the Antichrist, obviously, and he shall make a firm covenant with many. Notice it says many, not all. Okay? This is the many in Israel who will do a deal with the devil, so to speak, for one week or seven years. Okay? So that's, that's, that's what starts the tribulation right there. That phrase right there is when Antichrist signs a peace covenant with many of the leaders in Israel. Not all of the leaders, but many of the leaders. That starts the tribulation. And in the middle of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblations to cease. So all the sacrifice and offerings that are going on in the temple, Antichrist stops them. So he has, he has allowed them to do their sacrificing for the first three and a half years of the tribulation. Okay. And upon the wing of abominations, or the pinnacle of the temple, shall come one that makes desolate. So this is called the abomination of desolation, okay? And even unto the full end, and that determined shall wrath be poured out upon the desolate. So the idea is that he, this is the abomination of desolation, that he, he goes in the highest part of the temple, claims himself to be God, and then there's a second phase to the abomination, which I'll show you in just a second. Okay, just reading this text, it is making an implication, and it's making an assumption. So as you read it, it's telling you, Antichrist makes a deal with Israel that allows them to start their sacrificial system in the temple once more. So what's the implication? 
a third temple will be rebuilt is the implication. Because right now, what temple are we talking about? Current speaking, there's nothing there. They would love to build a temple. Um, the whole Temple Mount faithful are ready to go. They're training the priests as we speak right now. They have the Levitical priests they're training, the young men. They've checked out their DNA, and they have a common ancestor. We know that ancestor would be Aaron. And they're using those Levitical men in Israel to train them. They're all being trained right now. They have the robes. They have the garments. They're going through it all. They, they say that they can put up the temple in three months if they were allowed to. So they're ready to go. So, obviously, just reading Daniel, it implies a future temple will be rebuilt on the Temple Mount, which implies that you must get control of old Jerusalem. Israel must get control of that. So that's where the implication comes from. Let's keep reading on the next page, a couple more passages. Matthew 24, we jump into the New Testament in the Olivet Discourse. When therefore you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken through, the de- through Daniel the prophet, which we just read, standing in the holy place. Let him that reads understand. And basically the ob- admission at that point is to flee. Um, so Jesus reiterates this. Again, implying a future temple. Go to Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Let no man beguile you in, in any wise or trick you. For it will it will not be or the, this coming of the Lord, except the falling away comes first, which we talked about as the great apostasy of the church, and the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, he that opposes and exalts himself against all that is called God, or that is worshipped. So that, and here's the key, that he sits in the temple of God, setting himself forth as God. So that's the first part of the abomination of desolation, is Antichrist goes into a Jewish temple and proclaims himself to be God. Okay? Again, what's the implication? A temple needs to be there. And the Antichrist will actually go into this. Now we move to Revelation chapter 11, 1 through 2. And there was given me a reed like a, like unto a rod. And one said, rise, and measured what? The temple of God. This is the one on earth, not the one in heaven. And the altar, and them that worship therein. And the court which is without the temple, leave without, and measure it not, for it has been given unto the nations, or the Gentiles. And the holy city shall they tread underfoot, notice its phrase, 40, uh, 40 and 2 months, or 42 months, uh, three and a half years. The idea then that Revelation is giving you, again, a temple is being built and it's being measured by God allowing this. It is not a temple to be, that is sanctioned by God. It's an acknowledgement of this. Um, and so, like I've said many times, please do not give to any Jewish group wanting money to build, rebuild their temple because you're giving to a uh, temple that's not sanctioned by God. It's a temple to be sacri- uh, sacrileged by the Antichrist. So the implication is, at some point in the future, they will seize the Temple Mount. Now, it's very interesting that we brought up about Moshe Dayan they had the Temple Mount in the Six-Day War. They had it. And Moshe Dayan, he's a secular Jew. He's not an uh, Orthodox or Hasidic or anything. Moshe Dayan knew that he would have every Muslim on Israel's back if they did this. And so his intention was to give it back because he didn't want a, a war with the Muslims. They were, they were fighting enough. So he gave it back, thus fulfilling prophecy in that sense. He didn't realize that. 
but that Jerusalem will be trampled on by the times of the, uh, sorry, uh, the Temple Mount will be trampled by the, the Gentiles until Messiah comes. And so even though Jerusalem may get temporary control, now here's the, here's the key phrase, Jerusalem or Israel may get temporary control of the Temple Mount, but they never have final control. So like with a, like Tom points out in the Six Day War, they had temporary control, but they gave it back. In the tribulation, they will have three and a half years of Temple Mount control. And then at the three and a half year mark, Antichrist takes it back from them. So they never fully have permanent control because they won't have it until Messiah comes, rebuilds a new millennial temple and gives them full control and secures it for them. So it's very interesting. I think it's, it, what he did was prophetic. It showed you that God says, no, no, my son will do this uh, and rebuild the temple. So yes, so implication. At some point in the future, Israel will regain control of the Temple Mount. They have the old city. They will get that Temple Mount. Now, what we're going to study next week is the Psalm 83 invasion, which I'm going to insert right after this. And we're going to look at um, a little bit of Gog and Magog today. But Psalm 83, I believe, is in the near future. And I believe it comes before Gog and Magog. If Psalm 83 goes down, and, I, and I'll show you the ramifications of that war, it definitely shows you the possibility for Israel regaining the Temple Mount. Maybe not, but it, it definitely, what, what ends up happening is they decimate all their Arab neighbors around them. I mean, completely decimate them. There's what's called the 75-day interval in Daniel chapter 12. And if you do the math in Daniel chapter 12, there's an extra 75 days in between the second coming and the millennial uh, kingdom. And in that 75 days, that's where he not only does the sheep and goat judgment, but he does the judging, sorry, the destruction of the Jewish temple and the rebuilding of the new in that seven-day period. Uh, sorry, the seven-day period, a uh, 75-day period. Um Interesting enough, this is very interesting that you bring that up. Most people don't see this. He leaves it up. He leaves it up while he's doing the sheep and goat judgment. Very interesting. So it's not like Messiah gets there and destroys it right away. He leaves it up and he leaves the abomination of desolation up. And he does the sheep and goat judgment before he destroys it. He resurrects the Old Testament saints. Then he destroys that temple, rebuilds a new one. Marriage supper of the Lamb, then is the first day that inaugurates the kingdom. So, we're there, we get to see all this, but here's my question to you guys. Why leave the abomination of desolation up and the, the, the temple that the Jews built up behind him as he's judging in the Kidron Valley? If you guys know the Kidron Valley, that is east of the Temple Mount. There's a huge rift valley that's been created by him standing on the Mount of Olives. He's created a, a valley that's very large, and he has brought everybody that's still alive, the sheep and the goats, in front of him, and then his brethren, the Jews, are there. And he, as he faces out, just picture this in your mind, as he faces out facing the Kidron Valley, or facing the, where the Mount of Olives was, which he would be facing eastward. Okay, so it's like I'm facing, I'm facing eastward. So behind me 
is the desecrated temple and the abomination of desolation and the idol of the Antichrist standing behind him. Why does he leave it up while he judges? He doesn't take it down. Did you see that, what he's trying to do? It's it's all about deduction, about putting these things together, because if Daniel says he doesn't destroy it till I think, what, the 30-day mark or 45-day mark or whatever, he's doing this for a reason. As he's judging in the sheep and goat judgment, what what's the common phrase in the sheep and goat judgment? I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me water. When did we do this to you? And he says it to the sheep. When you did it to the least of these, my brethren, the brethren will be right there by him. Who Who are they? Who are his brethren? Jewish believers. Jewish remnant. The true nation of Israel. And the idea of my brethren comes from um, Malachi chapter 4, I believe it is. If you want a definition of that real quick, I'll give it to you. Um, Malachi, is it Malachi? Maybe I'm, uh, maybe it's Micah. Yeah, it's, sorry, Micah. Micah. It's not the Italian prophet Malachi, it's uh, Micah, sorry. Micah 5, start in verse 2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet you, out of you shall come forth to me, the one to be ruler in Israel, but whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Okay, so that's a Christmas verse, right? That's the birth of Messiah. Keep reading that. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. Then the remnant, who's the remnant? Believing Jews, notice what it says, of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel, and he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord. Talking about the second coming. So yeah, in, in, sorry, uh, Micah 5, you have the first coming and the second coming, and you notice the phrase, the remnant his brethren. So that phrase is picked up by Messiah in Matthew 25, when you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. When you did it to the Jews, you fed the Jews in the tribulation, you gave them water in the tribulation, you hid them from the Antichrist in the tribulation, you did it unto me. And see, he says that to the sheep. But then he says to the goats, you didn't visit me, you didn't feed me. You didn't, you didn't clothe me. You didn't help me. When did we do this? When you did it, when you didn't do to the least of these, my brethren, you did it, you didn't do it to me. Based on that statement, it's loaded with the idea is the reason they didn't do this to the Jews is because the Jews were persecuted by the Antichrist and they followed suit with the Antichrist in persecuting Jews and bringing them before Antichrist and killing them and killing actually two-thirds of them, they will help participate in annihilating the Jews. So he leaves up there the very thing they were worshiping to show them it was nothing but an idol. I am the one true God. Not the one that you were following. I just I just smoked him right now. I just killed him just by my word. He was nothing to me. It's like someone stepping on an ant. You were worshiping a false god, and because of that, you're going to hell. That is the judgment of the Gentiles. Living Gentiles. The Hebraic way of stating that someone's saved is not saved. Well, they're saved. That's, that's so, that's so Gentile, I can't even know where to begin. We use that term. He's saved. Yeah, he got saved. They don't say that. They say he's righteous. 
when that meant that, that he had assumed a foreign righteous, that Paul will say Abraham became righteous when he believed. So when the Bible says someone is righteous, it means that they're saved. It doesn't mean they're doing things by their works. The greatest way to witness to the Jew as far as that is concerned is to start with how does one become righteous? That's what they struggle with. In essence, they have to understand, they have to get a foreign righteousness from Messiah that he gives them in order to be... That's why when Paul's dealing with them, when he handles Gentiles differently compared to Jews, the idea is a Jew would say, be saved from what? Because a Jew already assumed they were saved because they were Jewish and because the Torah had been given to them. They already assumed that. So Paul has to unpack that and say, you don't have your own righteousness that doesn't automatically qualify you to be righteous because you're a Jew. So he'll unpack that, and especially Romans really unpacks that for him. Um, so it's a completely different tactic. But to this point in Matthew 25, he points out the evidence of them being saved or not saved. So it's a Hebraic way of saying, when you did this, it evidenced you were saved. That you took care of my people, the Jews. It evidences that you were not saved when you were hostile and actually tried to kill them. Evidence that you were not saved. What is it? It's James chapter 2. James chapter 2 is a Hebrew epistle. And what does he say about faith? Faith without works is dead. Not that works save you, but if you have a faith, it will produce fruit in your life. And in this sense, in the tribulation, the main fruit will be how you treat the Jews. That will be the main fruit that evidences that someone's a believer. So to that point, if you can see this in your mind, it's like God is putting their sin that's casting them into hell right in front of their very eyes as he's judging them. The abomination is right behind them, the one they were worshiping, that cast, that's going to send them into hell for that, that, that mind. Okay, so that being said... Um, you move to the Six-Day War. Obviously, the Six-Day War secured the old city. Like Tom said, Moshe Dayan had the Temple Mount, and they relinquished it. But they do control the uh, old city now, and all they have to do is control that, that uh, last area of the Temple Mount. Okay, that brings us to the next page. I want to start the Northern Alliance invasion to get you to a certain point to show you there is an indication of a need of an event prior to this. And then what I'm going to do is next week unpack that event prior to this. So we, I want to start out in Ezekiel, show you the players, but also show you there is something that seems to be needed to happen prior to this. Okay, Ezekiel, the northern, the northern invasion uh, in Ezekiel 38 and 39, you know this is the Gog and Magog invasion. But a couple preliminary things before we take a, a, a back step into Psalm 83. If you look at there in the middle of your page, Ezekiel 38, 1 through 6, it's going to name the players. And I want you to take note of who the players are. The word of Yahweh came unto me saying, Son of man, set your face towards Gog. Gog is the proper name like Tsar, Kaiser, Pharaoh. So that's just a proper title. So you could put in there uh, anybody um, as a title. Um, if it happened today, if it went down, it would be Putin. That's who it would be. This is the area. Of the land of Magog, 
Okay, the land of Magog is that area between, you know, it's southern Russia, the black, between the Caspian Sea and the Black Sea, that, that area. And notice the prince of Rosh, which is northern Russia. Meshach, which is an uh, etymology for the word Moscow. And Tubal is the etymology, the old ancient name for Tobolsk. And so you're talking right there about southern Russia and Rosh referring to northern Russia. So Magog, Meshach, and Tubal are southern Russia. So now you have encompassed all of Russia or former Soviet Union and prophesy against them. Now, the reason this guy's named first in Hebrew, anytime you see someone named first, it means they're in priority. They're the leader. So guess who the leader of this alliance is? Russia. Okay? And prophesy against them and say, Thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I am against you, O God, Prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. And I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaw. So that's a key phrase. What hook is God going to bring them in on? I will bring you forth and all thine army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed in full armor, a great company with buckler and shield, all of them handling swords. Let's stop right there before the name of players. I am not sure if this invasion that these these references to weapons of being swords and the idea that uh, they're on horses and horsemen and there's an army, seems to be on foot. I am not sure if this is figurative language that pointing to just simply military or if I'm to take this literally. If I take it literally, then I have to conclude that something has happened with oil reserves and gasoline. Like I was teaching the youth last night, in the, in the campaign of Armageddon, the Euphrates Rivers dries up for the army of Antichrist to move in on Israel. I said, what does that imply? Well, if helicopters work and tanks work and ships work and all that other stuff, why would I even be concerned about a river drying up? I can go right over it with a plane or a helicopter. Unless they don't have access to oil and fuel. And if you don't have access to oil and fuel... You're back on foot and you're back on horseback. Because how else would you move? Because if I'm in Iran and, and, or, or Babylonian, the Antichrist is going to move his army, why can't he just fly him over there? Why does he have to, to be dependent on a river drying up? That you'd only be dependent on a river drying up if you had horses and chariots. Unless people can't get fuel at that time. I don't know. That's why I leave it to, to for our kind of perusal. If this is literal, then something has happened to the oil and gas reserves in the Middle East. And Russia doesn't have the ability to, to man armies and tanks and, and helicopters and airplanes and aircraft because they don't have any gas or whatever. I don't know. I don't know. If it's figurative language, then you're simply seeing just an a, uh, invasion um, of Israel militarily. So you can have it either way. You still work out with the same issue. It says this... <clears throat> Persia, right there, Iran, Kush is Ethiopia slash Sudan. Put could be translated a different way. Put could either be Somalia or it could be Libya, Algeria, and Tunisia. It just depends on, on how you're going to translate that. And then it says, with them and all of them with shield and helmet. Interesting enough, you could have two, two interpretations of this. Gomer can refer to either Germany or it can refer to Turkey. 
the rabbis interpreted Gomer as Germany. They called it Germania. And so they put the term Germany. So a lot of times people will include Germany. Now, if it includes Germany, I don't know how Germany gets in the mix of this. Because I don't see a connection today. I really don't. If it's Turkey, I see a better connection with Turkey. Definitely Turkey. And Turkey's implied here as well in that whole area above Israel, as you'll see. And all his hordes in the house of Togomar. Togomar is Turkey. So it all that's going to include it. could be included. Uh, and so Gomer could be one part of Turkey and Togomar is another part of Turkey, more in the middle. Togomar also included Armenia. So it's, it's more of the uh, eastern side of Turkey, um, if you look on a map. In the uttermost parts of the north, so all the way up probably Siberia, and all his hordes, even many peoples with you. Okay, so there's your players. Interesting enough that Moscow is in direct line with Jerusalem. They're directly north of Jerusalem on a map. And so that's why it's called a northern invasion because Russia is leading that. Implications. Notice the country's named and notice who's missing from the invasion who I would already assume would be part of this invasion, but they're not there. Arab countries. There is no single Arab country in this invasion. That's a hint that something has happened to the Arabs surrounding Israel, which I will show you next week. But I want you to see this, and what Ezekiel is saying, it seems to imply that an event has happened prior to this. Why are there no Arabs in, in this invasion? Because they would love to join up with these boys and wipe out Israel. They would love it. They would love the chance. Hamas, Fatah, uh, you know, Hezbollah up north in Lebanon and the Egyptians, completely devoid from this invasion. I find that extremely interesting, but there is a commonality among all the countries named here. Have you figured it out? What's the commonality, at least with all the countries named in this passage? Today. I heard it. They're Muslim. Non-Arab Muslims. Non-Arab Muslims. Very interesting. Ah, yes, there's a commonality. It's Islam. As I will show you with Psalm 83, there's a commonality there, too. And that's why I'm going to show you this, that there's something going on here that's just bigger than meets the eye. Turn your next page over. Uh, A couple pages. One, oh... Where is it at? 109, huh? There we go. 109. The rest of your pages talk about the etymology of the words, and and you can read that on your own. The object of the the invasion, okay? This is important. Read this in Ezekiel 38, 7 through 9. But you prepare, ye prepare yourself, you and all your companies that are assembled unto you, and be you a guard unto them. After many days you shall be visited. In the latter years, you shall come into the land that is brought back from the sword. Notice, it's talking about a return of Israel from the other countries in, under the sword, which which uh, you could talk about the Holocaust and all kinds of, of atrocities that happened to the Jews. That is gathered out of many peoples, not from Babylon, but from the entire world, right? Upon the mountains of Israel, and that's a key phrase. That mountains of Israel... They must have control of the mountains of Israel for this invasion. Okay? Because this is where the invasion will happen, on the mountains. Okay? Which have been a continual waste. Notice that. Absolutely. I agree, Ezekiel. Because how long has Israel been out of the land? 
for nearly 2,000 years. So the mountains of Israel were at a waste. Mark Twain talked about being there in the 1800s. And he says, this place is like a moonscape. It's right. He was right because prophecy says once they're out of the land, the land won't flourish. And that's what he's saying, the which, the which, at which the, the, the mountains are a continual waste. And that's how it was. And he goes, but it is brought forth out of the peoples that, and they shall dwell securely, all of them. And you want to make sure you get that word dwell securely down. Securely does not mean shalom. It means batak, B, uh, I think it's B-A-T-A-C-H, batak which means militarily secure, not shalom secure, but militarily secure. Is, is Israel in the Batak mode right now? Absolutely. And you shall ascend, you shall come like a storm, and you shall be like a cloud to cover the land, you and all your hordes and many peoples with you. Okay, so there's the, the, uh, the first part of the object of invasion is to come against Israel. What's the goal? Page 110. Ezekiel 38 on the bottom of there. Thus says the Lord Yahweh, It shall come to pass in that day that the thing shall come into your mind, and you shall devise an evil device. So they're coming up with a, 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 a brain uh, brainchild plan to, to attack Israel. And you shall say, and here's what they say, I will go up to the land of unwalled villages. How did they get unwalled? How did the villages get unwalled? That's the question, okay? It presupposes something has happened. I will go to them that are at rest. Is Israel at rest today? No, they're constantly at fight. What happened that dwells securely? There's the word batak again, militarily secure. All of them dwelling without walls. Notice the wall is gone. Remember the wall they have up now between the Gaza Strip and all that? Having neither bars nor gates. And look at this last phrase to take the spoil and to take the prey. Folks, those are only terms that you get from going to war. Spoil is what you get from attacking an enemy and taking what they have after they're dead. I don't care what kind of view you've heard, but obviously there's something here. I've heard views of, well, they're going to come after the Dead Sea oil, uh, not oil, but salt preserves. I don't think Russia wants the Dead Sea Minerals. Um, then I've heard other theories that Israel might strike oil. That's a very possibility. I don't know. But the word spoil is telling you that Israel has had a prior military victory before this invasion. And Russia wants what they gained from this military action they have taken. Because it spoils. That's your clue. There must be a prior war before the invasion of Gog and Magog. Because otherwise, what would they attack? He's telling you, I'm coming for the spoils. So there's your hint. Let's read the rest of it. To turn your hand against the waste places that are now inhabited, Israel's inhabited, and against the people that are gathered out of the nations. Yes, that's happened. It presupposes Israel's a nation. That have gotten cattle and goods that dwell in the middle of the earth. Israel's considered the middle of the earth. Notice this. Sheba and Dedan, Saudi Arabia, and the merchants of Tarshish. Tarshish was located in three places. It was located in northern Africa, Spain, and parts of Britain. Okay, so there's three Tarshishes, but Tarshish basically covered from Africa, Spain, and Western Europe. 
Okay, all that whole area was named Tarsus. And you had to be very specific on which Tarsus you were trying to go to. Okay, and the merchant of Tarsus, with all the young lions thereof, shall say unto you, Are you come to take spoil? Have you assembled your company to take the prey, to carry away silver and gold, to take away cattle and goods, to take great spoil? Okay, so let's identify Tarsus. If it is... Um, obviously, in Northern Africa, Northern Africa never produced any young lions. Young lions could be translated villages as well. You, that these areas produced other inhabitant places. They they started new countries and stuff like that. Africa never did that. The, the, the northern part of Africa, Spain did, and so did Europe, uh, Northern Europe with Great Britain. If those two locations are included in this. That being the case, then you're looking at the entire Western Hemisphere as being the young lions of Tarsus, with Spain and Portugal producing the South American, Latin American countries, even up into close to North America. But then the the Western Europe side of Tarsus, the British side, produced America, Canada, and whatnot, Australia as well. So if you take it in that sense... This is the closest I think we can come to of identifying where the United States comes to, if it's not already there, in its dealings with Israel. What did the young lions in Tarsus do along with Saudi Arabia? Interesting, the Saudi Arabia connection. Saudi Arabia and these young lions of Tarsus. All they simply do is question Russia, Iran, and the rest of these people who have attacked Israel why do you do this? Why are you planning to take their spoils? It's kind of like the United Nations. They talk, but they can't do anything. It's a position of neutrality. Or, let's put it this way, not neutrality. When you don't help Israel, you're against Israel. And so they, they stay out of protecting Israel. They stay out of doing anything about this invasion. And they just let it happen. And all they do is, why do you do this? Why do you come for their spoils? Notice they're using military language of a previous war. You're coming for Israel's spoils. You're not coming for Israel's agriculture or what they can produce naturally. You're coming for what Israel has gained in their war. And oh, if that is us, and I believe it is, all we do is question it. We don't get involved, we don't protect Israel, and they get attacked. If that's the case, we're already there. We are already there as a country. The mindset it doesn't take a leap of logic. I mean, maybe if we were in the, the 50s or whatever, we could say, well, I can't even believe us ever turning our back on Israel after we just put them back into the land. <laughs> Here we are. We have done more in the last six, seven years to the nation of Israel to turn our backs on them than we ever have in our whole history. And this day is dawning. I can totally see our attitude against that. If, if Russia invaded today, let's just pretend... That Russia invaded today. What would we do? Nothing. We don't do with anything to Russia with the Ukraine. We don't do anything with them. We don't do anything with ISIS. We don't do anything. We're there. In the early days when I read guys, they talked about this Northern Alliance invasion. There's no doubt. They just left this idea about coming for the spoils. They didn't touch it. They didn't know what to say. Very few would identify them. And what it's, it's taken is modern scholarship to go back and say, where was this at? What did the rabbis say where this location was? 
And it's only been through that they say, okay, this is what the early rabbis held where Tarshish was. Because that's our only clue. And that's come to light. The other thing that's come to light is a more in-depth study of that passage. And you can see, just by us reading it, spoils is a war, a word for war. It comes from war. And when I read these early guys that talk about that, they said Israel would be attacked. But then they would, they would allegorize parts of it, as we'll see later on. They didn't know where to put it. So some guys would put it in the middle of the tribulation. Some guys would put it at the end of the tribulation. But you'll see, as we study this, you can't do that because there's a timing mechanism on the, the, the battle. So I, I don't know what, what happened. I think guys were glossing over a lot of things. And then today, it's like they've taken a, a sharper look at it. And I think that's why, that with that prophecy coming to fruition in our lifetime, Dave, we understand it better than anybody has ever understood because we live in the time period. And it makes total sense. And Daniel's trying to imply with that prediction in chapter 12, that the generation that lives closest to these time periods understands it the best. That's And, and I, I think the closer we get to them, the whole prophecy start getting fine-tuned. I'm trying to figure myself out. If I live in the 1500s and I'm reading Ezekiel 38 and 39, there's no way I would have picked up on that. I would have probably, because of the dominance of the Catholic Church or whatever, and even the reformers, I would have just allegorized that thing. So what, what we have seen lately in the developments of prophecy is that when we look back and we study these passages, they've never come true in Israel's life, like Psalm 83, I'll show you the next week. It never came true in Israel's life, nor were those players named in Psalm 83 ever aligned. And then obviously I'm going to show you another passage, Jeremiah 49, it says the destruction of Elam. That never happened to Elam. And Elam is southern Iran. And where it's located is where the Bushir uh, nuclear power plant is. And in some way, somehow, Jeremiah says, whatever happens there, that, that destruction, no one can live there anymore. They flee from the area. And I'll show you that. And so I, but I don't know where to place it. I don't know where to place it. You guys are hitting on a good point. I, I agree. And that's why I think that prophecy goes in line with knowledge will increase in the end. It, good night, man. Before 1948, you're right. What, what were we to think as believers about Israel? We were named... How's this going to work? But now, the, once the player is back in place, everything lines up. And it's, it's predicated on Israel. Isn't that interesting? So then we look at today, and you say, well, Israel's back in the land. It presupposes a temple. Yeah, that makes sense, because Israel wants to build a temple. You couldn't have said that in the 1800s. You know, you, were, you would have allegorized it. And so I think this is the blessing that you guys and I get to enjoy that there has been very few Christians, unless we're the apostle in the apostles' age when they were teaching it, once you got away from the apostles, prophecy just went out the door. And it's really, in the last hundred years, that prophecy has really been so fine-tuned and detailed and taken correctly that we start understanding this stuff. And we can connect dots like no Christian has ever been. So I know it, it seems like a lot of judgment and stuff, but man, this is a privileged position you and I have to connect these dots. That's the greatness of the prophetic word. It tells you beforehand what's going to happen. And honestly, I've, I've, I've witnessed to many, many people and they say, how did you know that? Are you, are you like secret service or what are you, man? And 
I said, no, no, I'm actually, um, I'm a goat hunter. And they go, a goat hunter? I said, yeah, it's my father's business. The benefits are fantastic, by the way. I go and hunt goats, and I bring them to my father, and he turns them into sheep. I don't know how he does it. Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Anchor Discipleship. We hope that this message is a blessing to you and helps you grow towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. Rock Harbor Church has two other podcasts. The first is called The Anchor Sunday Sermons and is filled with pastors' Sunday messages. And the second is The Anchor Bible Study. It's filled with past and continuing Bible studies preached during our Wednesday evening services. If you enjoyed this message and would like to hear them, please check the description of this episode or search your favorite podcast streaming services. Rock Harbor Church also has a print-to-order merchandise store. You can shop for Rock Harbor merch at rockharborchurch.store. Support for all three of our podcasts comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Keep looking up for our redemption draws near. God bless.